Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. I was debating during Phil's prayer if I should give this mic to Ryan and just have him preach, or if God knows what we're really praying. And so the Lord knows, and so thanks. And uh, we'll also pray that the Lord would help. Thanks for reading and praying, Phil. That's great. Uh, We'll be looking today at Isaiah 40, verses uh, 1 through 11. If you're following along in a pew Bible, it's in the Old Testament. It's on page 599. Uh, If you're following along in your bulletin, you can see the text printed there on uh, pages 8 and 9. As we've mentioned already, this is the second week of Advent. And Advent is a term that means coming or arrival, um, Advent may not be something that you've grown up practicing. It's, it's a time that's before we celebrate Christmas, and it's a time where we really focus on waiting for that celebration, waiting for the celebration of, of Jesus' arrival. And as we saw last week, we as Christians are waiting people. Uh, this is something that characterizes the life of the people of God. Uh, we're people who live in longing, living expectantly, for a God who says that he acts for those who wait for him. And we live confessing our sins to him and hoping in the promise that he's given us to one day set all things right. And part of what waiting means is that things are not perfect now. Uh, You might not need me to tell you that, but it's interesting to stop and think about it. Each year as we come to the Advent season, I find myself wondering, will this be the year when Advent seems less relevant? When maybe we just skip and jump right to Christmas? Uh, When there aren't people in the hospital or being diagnosed with major illnesses? When we're not going to funerals or memorial services? When relationships are healed and restored and we're not in such desperate need? maybe when wars have ceased and conflicts subside. But until Christ comes again, that will not be the case, will it? Advent will always be relevant for us, and our waiting for Christ to come again will be a mix of both blessing and joy and also a mix of hardship and suffering. And this is how it's always been for the people of God. This is nothing new for us. But one of the most amazing things is that God wants to meet us and is with us in the waiting. And what we'll see in our passage this morning is not only that he's present with us, but part of what he wants to do in our lives is to comfort us while we wait for him in Christ's return. And so as we Think about this word comfort. You you may notice the sermon title is comfort while we wait, and our our passage will talk a lot about it. But it's important to think about what is comfort even in the first place. You know, some of us may hear the term and we think, well, that's just a nice sentimental thing that I don't really need. Um, One of the things that comes to my mind is, you know, in a movie or in a story where a person's mortally wounded, things are not okay, and the people around them say, everything's going to be fine. Um, that's not really what comfort is. It may be a nice thing to do. You can think about that on your own time. But comfort goes far deeper than that. 
Our English word for comfort comes from the Latin word that means to strengthen greatly. And as we look in the Bible at how it uses these terms for comfort, it, it, it means to relieve or to lessen someone's sorrow or someone's distress. When we think about comforting one another on a human level, comfort often doesn't take the source of trouble away, but it helps you in the trouble and strengthens you in it. You can think of this on a physical level. When a child is injured, maybe scrapes their knee or gets a bump on the head or maybe a splinter that's going to need to be removed. We can comfort that child, right? We draw near with tender words and gentle touch. And and what happens when you do? Comfort actually does something, doesn't it? Their heart rate slows down and their anxiety lessens and they're able to better deal with the pain. They're comforted. This also happens on an emotional level. We could think of our experience of grief. The people who comfort us in our grief don't undo the disaster that just happened. They can't make the car accident go away or the diagnosis leave. But their care, the way that they see you and are with you in the pain, it does something. It brings comfort. It brings relief to the intensity of the heartache, which strengthens you in the process of grieving. And what's amazing about our passage today is that while we experience this on a human level, God wants us to understand that he is present with us, seeking to do this in us as our God. He wants us to have a word of comfort as his people. And in the context of Isaiah chapter 40, if there were ever people who needed a word of comfort, they sure did. And Isaiah may not be a book that that you're reading all the time, and even just our history of of Israel and and what all happened with the tribes and all that kind of stuff. So before we read our passage, I just want to bring us up to speed. Things have already been very difficult, very dark for God's people as we come to chapter 40. The international scene has been terrifying. World superpowers are jostling for their territory. There are shifting alliances and threats of destruction. And those haven't just been threats. Their relatives have been taken away by Assyria. The northern kingdom is no more because the Assyrians have come and ravaged it. And as we come to chapter 39 of the book of Isaiah, their king, Hezekiah, he receives word that is worse than anything they could have imagined. Babylon was rapidly gaining power, and they would come and take them and everything they loved away. Their entire world was going to be shattered. And you know how their king, their leader, responded? Well, it's good to know it won't be during my time. My sons can deal with that. How comforting is that? as you think of what lies ahead. But the worst news of all in this whole situation was that this was their fault. You see, for the people of Israel, they were under a particular arrangement with God, which we call the Mosaic Covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. And basically it said this, if you obey me, you stay in the land and you will be blessed. But if you disobey, the land will vomit you out. 
And despite the warnings they'd had from prophet after prophet, the people continued to worship idols. The people continued to trust other human leaders and nations to save them. The land was full of injustice. They failed to love their God and care for the people they were called to protect. And so this was it. God had been long-suffering with their disobedience, but now exile to Babylon had come. And in the context of that earth-shattering news, the Lord sends forth the most surprising words, a picture of the comfort that he will bring to relieve and strengthen his people through that impending darkness. And so let's look at what he says in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we look at it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to hear your word of comfort today. Strengthen us while we wait. Encourage us with what you have done for us in Christ and what we will one day receive in its fullness. We ask that your spirit would help us to understand and believe your word of comfort this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll see uh, three comforting truths or promises as we look at this passage, as we look at verses 1 through 11, um, and we'll walk through them. But the first is, God still loves them. Second, God is coming to them. And third, God is coming for them. And so we'll, we'll see how those things are in this message of comfort this morning. So first of all, notice that God's word of comfort begins by saying he still loves them. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. It is easy for us to forget how shocking the way this begins. Comfort, comfort my people. 
just how striking these words would have been to the hearers in Isaiah's day. We've heard Handel's Messiah. We've read ahead. We know how the exile ends and the promises that will come. But the pronouns of verse 1 would stop the people in their tracks. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Somehow, after blowing it with the Mosaic Covenant and leaving that agreement in shambles, they are still his people and he is their God. How can this be? Is really what they would be wondering. Well, he begins with this twofold word about his love for them. And he, he shows us this their sin will not stop his plan, and their sin will not stop his love. Notice, first of all, that their sin will not stop his plan. Look at look at chapter 40, verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Right away, we see that it's legal covenant language there, isn't it? Her iniquity is pardoned, which means all is justly forgiven. And when it says there that you've received double for all your sins, It doesn't mean that they somehow unjustly received double punishment, but instead it's a way of the Lord saying, your hands are full. It's enough suffering. The warfare that you have brought upon yourself is over, and now you can have peace, is what he's saying to them. Well, how how can this be? How can it be that their iniquity is forgiven? They, They didn't deserve this, but they broke all the rules in the book. And they didn't atone for their sin somehow through their suffering in exile. It wasn't that they suffered so much God could now take them back. What it means is that God instead, by his grace, would find a way to forgive them and to pay their debt. Later as you come from Isaiah 40 into Isaiah 53, you start to learn that it's going to be through the servant who's going to bear their sins bear their iniquity so that they can be forgiven. And so notice, first of all, that this message of comfort is that they are still his people because of his grace. Even their sin cannot stop his plan to be with them as their God. But that leads to the other important part of this. It's not just legal problem-solving language. But he says their sin will not stop his plan. But then he also says their sin will not stop his love. Their sin will not stop his love. Did you notice how verse 2 begins? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And then he gives this message of pardon. This phrase, speak tenderly, isn't just use a gentle tone, although it can be captured in tone as well, but it's language of affection. Literally, it's speak to her heart. And part of what we learn by this this phrase, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, is um, it's fleshed out more in Hosea 2.14, where the Lord uses this same phrase of speaking tenderly of how he's going to talk to his wayward people one day. 
He says, Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the, into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That's not creepy language. That's, that's love language there. Because notice what God is not saying to his people. He's not saying, I'll fix it, I'll pay the debt, and then I'll send you on your way. It's him saying, I will fix it so we can be together and so we can have the intimacy that we never had before. You see, this message of comfort begins by him saying he still loves them. He will forgive them because he loves them. Think of what this would have meant to them at that time. Picture the faithful ones in Jerusalem. There was still a remnant there of those in Israel who were trusting in the Lord. And as they hear this message of coming judgment and Babylon to come, and they hear that Babylon continues to grow in power, they get word that Babylon is marching out against them. And they look around and they see their fellow Israelites who are continuing in unrepentance, doing all the things they've been doing all along. They see the sin all around them. And they stop and they look at their own hearts and they realize that even they weren't living righteously enough to deserve the blessing of God's presence. God's message of comfort comes to them and it says, even sin can't stop my plan to be with you. Somehow, someday, your iniquity All of it will be pardoned. And all the judgment that sin has brought upon you, it will be ended and you will have peace. And before and throughout the exile and after the exile, it's as though he's saying to them this, keep this tender word close to your heart. I have forgiven you because I love you and that will not change. You know, this is the same word of comfort that God speaks to us today in our darkness, in our our suffering, isn't it? It's important to note that we are in a different situation than the people of Israel were back in the Mosaic Covenant. And the reason that's important is this. When things are hard in our lives or our nation, when things are going wrong for us, it's not one-to-one because of our sin or our disobedience like it was for them. For them, it was very clear and it was very connected. But Jesus made it clear. Remember the man born blind and the disciples are saying, hey, how did this happen? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus says it's far more complicated than that. And, And what that means is if you are here going through a trial or suffering, it's not necessarily because you have done wrong, like it was in the same way with the Mosaic Covenant. But yet, we find ourselves in this situation, that all of the hardships that we face are because of what sin has done to us and, what beca- and because of what sin has done to our world, isn't it? And so like the faithful in Israel, we look around and, and we see sin happening everywhere. We, we look around at our nation and we see that God and his ways are disregarded and opposed and often even mocked. Even more discouraging, we look within at the church 
the people who are supposed to be the faithful ones walking with God. And, and what do we see? We see scandal. We see apathy. We see materialism. We see that like Israel of old, the church is often seeking to choose power in this world over faith in God. And we look around and we see this mess and we, we start to wring our hands. What is God going to do? How can he work in the midst of this mess? But then we look at ourselves. We look at our own hearts and we see how sinful we are. I was thinking about it this past week. I feel just as sinful this Advent as I did last year. Do you? In fact, I feel even more sinful because I'm more aware of the depth of the twistedness in my own heart. And we look at the sin around us, we look at the sin in us, and we say, how in the world is this ever going to work out? And into that breaks God's word of comfort. Sin will not stop his plan for you. God has made a way in Jesus for all of your iniquity to be pardoned. He sent his son into the world to bear the sins of his people. And the Lord Jesus' outstretched arms received the full payment of judgment that we deserved so that we could receive the blessing of God drawing near to us. And so, believer, that means that your sin and the sin around you cannot stop God's plan to bless you. And even the things that surprise us, that continue to well up within us, they are no surprise to him. They were known and paid for at the cross. It's a message of comforting forgiveness. But here's the question that I have for you. Does that message of forgiveness take you to the second half of that truth, which is namely this. God has chosen to forgive you because he loves you. You see, many of us know about the the forgiveness of God, but many of us question and doubt the unceasing love of God toward us, even in our sin. And that's where this message of comfort comes to us. Your sin will not stop God's love for you. The Bible keeps the two of them together. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the twofold word that God is speaking so tenderly to your heart today is this. Brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Christ, God's forgiveness will not stop and neither will his love. And we can hold that close to our hearts in the midst of the darkness and the suffering that we walk through. And so the first word of his comfort is this, he still loves them. But then he goes on to say, secondly, he is coming to them. He is coming to them. We see this in verses 3 through 8. And in order to understand this, we really have to realize that the story of the Bible is a story of location. The geography in Scripture, the places in Scripture, they show us and teach us things. 
And as we saw back in our biblical theology of Leviticus class, the biblical story is framed by mountains and wildernesses. The mountain is the place of God's presence. The biblical story, Ezekiel tells us, begins on a mountain, the mountain of Eden. It's God's mountain glorious paradise where he dwelt with his people. And then from there it goes to Mount Sinai. And then the temple ends up settling um, on Mount Zion. And so in the biblical story, mountain is the place of God's presence. And then there's wilderness. There's outside of Eden where you're further from God. And it's the place of curse. And that's what made the news of the exile, that's what made the Babylonian captivity so devastating. It was more than just the horror of being conquered by another nation, which is terrifying enough, but it was that they would be taken from the land. They would be taken from the temple. They would be taken from God's presence. And if you were to think of the most ungodly place If you were to think in the biblical storyline of the deepest wilderness, Babylon would be it. And that's what makes God's message of comfort so surprising, is notice the location of where this comfort comes. Verse 3 says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know what that's saying? God is coming to them in the wilderness. The picture is that he sets out and marches out from Jerusalem and as as they look westward toward where they once were, they see this dust of this highway that's supernaturally unfolding before Yahweh as he walks out. And verse 4 tells us that nothing can stop him as he marches towards them in the wilderness. Valleys lift up and they become level. Mountains and hills, they bow down before him. And verse 5 says, he is coming and everyone is going to see his glory when he arrives. And that message would be so surprising and so hard for them to believe that verses 6 and 8 assure them this is going to happen The people are like grass and flowers. They quickly fade. But the word of our God, it will stand forever. And he has spoken saying he will come. And it will happen. Can you imagine? Can you imagine hearing those words in Babylon? In uh, in Psalm 137, It tells us that the exiles, it says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. You know, we may not know our our Middle Eastern geography very much, but Babylon would have been about 900, is about 900 miles from Jerusalem. And that's basically if we got in our car right now and started driving toward Colorado, we'd stop about um, 100 miles short of Denver. It took the exiles four months to walk back those 900 miles once they were delivered. So you picture sitting there in the deepest wilderness you can imagine, and you find yourself saying, how will we ever get back? There's no way I have the strength. 
There's, we're captives here. There, there's no way that we can get to God. And yet they heard and they remembered these tender words of comfort. In the wilderness, where you are, God is going to build a highway. You are not too far from God's rescue. He will come to you, and the wilderness itself is no match for him. Do you see what this is? It's not figure out a way to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get back to me, and then we'll talk. It's yes, you got yourself into this mess, but I am not afraid of the mess, and I am coming to you in the mess. And this is God's message of comfort for you this morning as well. You are not too far from God's rescue. Your wilderness is not too messy for God. I don't know the state of your soul this morning. Maybe you have been running from God or living your own life, whether that's in a wild, immoral way or whether that's in a moral way, but it's still apart from God and the salvation that he promises in Jesus. But you know what's happening today? God has come to you in that wilderness, in that distance from him, And even through my voice, he is inviting you to receive his rescue in Jesus Christ. You're not too far from him. Maybe as a believer, your life feels more like a wilderness than a garden. You may think, I know God saved me when I was a mess, but what does he think of me now? What does he think of the mess that I have made? Is he ashamed of me? The message of God's comfort is this. God is not afraid of the dry and weary places of your life. He's ready and he is with you in them. In this time of year, it reminds us that God is a God who comes to us in our wilderness When Jesus came, it wasn't because the people of Israel had it all together. Things actually were not going well at all. But Jesus' ministry began there where? In the wilderness, as John cried out and then baptized him. And where did Jesus' ministry end? It ended outside the city on a Roman cross as he endured our exile so that we could be brought near, so that God could be with us while we wait for him to come. Have you turned to him in your wilderness? Have you turned to him in your dry places for comfort, for strength in the waiting? He offers it to you today. And so this message of comfort is that he still loves them. This message of comfort is that he's coming to them. And then it gets even better, point three, He is coming for them. And we see this in verses 9 through 11. You know, you hear this message that God is going to come. You sit there on the shores of Babylon and you look around at your enemies and you look at your own situation and it really raises the question, what's going to happen when God shows up? (laughs) What's he going to do? Well, in verses 9 through 11, he tells them, 
Verse 9 says that from the mountaintop, good news is to be, be proclaimed to the people. And a threefold behold is supposed to go out so that they can get this picture in their minds of what happens when God shows up for them. And the image is this, behold your God, he's marching across the wilderness and his sleeves are rolled up and he's promising two things. The first is he will defeat all of your enemies. He will defeat all of your enemies. Notice verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. When God shows up, he comes with might. Nothing can stop his arm. He will rule over all. And there's no question of his victory. He already has his victory reward with him and his recompense toward his enemies. It's already going out ahead of him. And so he comforts his people with his power. He says, look around. Whatever enemy seems impossible to overthrow They are no match for me. What seems too powerful for you, Israel? Is it Babylon? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Is it the Medes and the Persians? Is it Greece? Is it Rome? Who is it that seems too powerful for the people of God? When God shows up, nothing can stop his arm. Behold his strength and power. And so think of the comfort that that brings to those exiles. They're so encouraged at the thought that one day every enemy would be overthrown. But it raises a question, doesn't it? But then what? (laughs) Because history is full of stories of conquering kings who come in and deliver from one enemy but just leave behind devastation, right? What will become of them when God comes? What will be left of them after 70 years away from their home? And in verse 11, he transitions from the picture of God's arm toward his enemies to a picture of God's arm toward his people. And he comforts them with the fact that he will not only defeat all your enemies, but secondly, he will heal all of your wounds. Verse 11 says, He will tend his flock as a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you see the picture that's happening? That same mighty arm that's outstretched against the enemies that no one can stand against is the very same arm that also circles around his people with tender shepherding care. He's picking up little lambs and he's carrying them back to Jerusalem. And those expecting mothers with young, he's making sure to bring them along so that they're not lost in what takes place. It's a picture of the shepherding care of God. And Ezekiel tells us later that in the shepherding care that God will bring to his people, what is he going to do? He binds up the wounded and he strengthens the weak. You see, what we see in Scripture is that when God shows up for his people, it's a twofold event. It's the overthrow of all that is evil, but it's also for his people the healing of all that has been destroyed. There's a beautiful picture 
of what happens when God shows up in this restoring, transforming, redeeming way that comes just a little bit later in Isaiah 51, verse 3. But I just want you to hear it because it talks about comfort and it talks about wilderness and it talks about what God does. Hear what happens in the places of curse, the places of loss. It says, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. And he makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Somehow, when the Lord comes, what he promises to do is this. He takes our waste places, our wildernesses, our deserts, and he transforms them into Eden, the garden paradise where he dwells with us in blessing. The Bible promises that when God comes and we experience the fullness of his presence in the new heavens and the new earth, one of the ways that it's described is that God will wipe away every tear and that there will be no more crying. And there are two reasons for that. One is because every bad thing has stopped. But the other part of that is because a comfort and a healing so deep has come that there's no longer any need to mourn. That's the healing transformation that God brings when he comes. That was the promise for them as they looked ahead to exile as they live through the exile, as they return from exile. And it's also the promise for us. What are the dry places of your life this morning? What are the wounds of this, that this world of sin has brought upon you that they feel so deep that they will never heal? It's no accident that Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd. Because when he came, he laid down his life not only that our sins could be forgiven, but that through his work, God can shepherd us and our hearts could be restored. And we're going to sing of it in a few moments where we'll be upheld, protected, gathered up. That healing work begins even now by his spirit, the comforter that our Lord Jesus sent us who even now is strengthening us, comforting us, drawing near to us in our pain, planting these seeds that even though they're watered with our tears, will one day give way to a harvest of joy. And we'll talk more about joy next week. But as we close, we're usually not good at waiting. Anyone here just 10-star waiter? I'm just really good at waiting. We usually want our problems to be over, don't we? And what I find is that in wanting my problems to be over and wanting the darkness to lift, we often want to comfort ourselves with celebration. And celebration and joy, they are good and they are right and there's a place for all of that. But what Advent reminds us of is that God is also with us in the waiting. And he's given us a message of comfort. 
And it's a message that he himself speaks tenderly to our hearts by his indwelling spirit. He still loves you, and he has shown that love irrevocably in the cross of Jesus Christ. He has come to you in Jesus and now by his spirit, and he will come again when our Lord returns and we we receive the fullness of his presence. And he has come for you already in the Lord Jesus, and he will come again to make all things right and to transform redeem and heal all that has been lost. And so as we remind our hearts of this good word of comfort this season, may the Lord Jesus help us to better understand his words. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your comfort to strengthen us while we wait. We pray that you would help us to believe that these words are true, that you have said them and they will happen, and that they are true for us, and that we can know that because of the Lord Jesus who came, who lived, who died, so that these things could be true of all who trust in him. Strengthen our faith in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.